I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and I'm fascinated by the Supreme Court. Everything from the pomp and circumstance of oral argument to the justices' personalities to the actual building, I'm a SCOTUS junkie, and I want to know everything I can about it. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. I'm a liberty-minded constitutional lawyer, and I, too, am a Supreme Court superfan. But you know what we both really like? Dissents. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. So what's the point of a dissent? Isn't it just the losing opinion? Here's how Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg once explained it. There has been a tradition in the United States of dissents becoming the law of the land. So the you're writing for a future age, uh, and your hope is that with time, the court will see it the way you do. Court watchers have a different perspective. They like dissents for the drama. Here's Adam Liptak of the New York Times. As a journalist... What you really hate is a fairly big decision that's unanimous because it doesn't have the quotable stuff. It doesn't have the interaction. It doesn't have the explanatory force. And it's, you know, written by Justice Ginsburg and it's methodical and it's 12 pages long and there's nothing to quote from it. And yet you have to make a newspaper article out of it. So I'm all for dissenters. In this season of Dist, we'll take a deep dive into dissenting opinions at the Supreme Court from the highly celebrated to the frequently quoted, to those lost to history, will tell the stories behind dissenting opinions. We'll also keep tabs on the court as opinions and dissents are released. To prepare for this season, we decided to ask a bunch of experts about the role of dissent at the Supreme Court. So my name is Tom Goldstein. I'm a lawyer and I have a law firm that specializes in Supreme Court litigation, and I've lost lots of Supreme Court cases And while many of them were nine to nothing, some have generated some dissents. I'm Adam Liptek. I cover the Supreme Court for the New York Times. This is Lisa Blatt, and I am a partner at Williams & Connolly, where I head our Supreme Court and appellate practice. And I've been watching the court since 1996 and have argued 40 cases in the Supreme Court. She's argued more cases than any other woman in history. My name is Paul Clement and I'm a partner at the law firm of Kirkland and Ellis. And before that, I was the Solicitor General of the United States. Supreme Court shortlister, Scalia clerk, and he's argued more than 100 cases at SCOTUS. I'm Ed Whalen, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Also a Scalia clerk and editor of three books compiling the speeches and writings of Scalia. When asked about the purpose of dissent, we got a lot of answers. But a common one was that dissents are really written for other members of the court. They're meant to persuade the majority of the court to change their view. Here's Paul Clement. The first purpose of a dissent is to try to become a majority opinion. Um, And probably the single most successful dissents are the ones that we on the outside never see. Because if a dissenting opinion convinces the majority to completely change its reasoning or causes a justice who indicated after argument that he or she was going to vote with the majority to switch their vote, 
then the dissent becomes the majority. So that's that's its first role. And so in an odd way, the dissents that we actually see in the U.S. reports have failed in their first objective. Um, so, you know, you could, you could almost say, like, we see nothing but failed dissents. But that's not the only purpose. But the fact that the justices go ahead and issue them anyways. That is, the fact that they write them, even if they're on the losing side. And don't just say, all right, I give up. Uh, suggests that they serve a different purpose, which is, in some cases, to become majority opinions maybe many years later. Or in other cases, just to explain that, you know, to, to the reader that the court's disposition was far from unanimous and that there was a different and in a particular justice's view, better way to decide the case. Judges may write a dissenting opinion with the hopes of being vindicated in the future. It's really a, um, I want this one to make a mark, to lay down a marker, um, lay down the, throw down the gauntlet, whatever, that can go very sharp, very thematic and that want to make a, a difference for future cases. They know this case was a lost cause, but they're hoping they can either change the minds of future jurists or even politicians. This makes me think of Justice Breyer and his death penalty dissents. In Glossop versus Gross, he's saying he wants the court to revisit whether capital punishment violates the Eighth Amendment. He's essentially laying down a gauntlet, and he's saying, I know I don't have the votes now, but I'm hopeful that in the future, the court will be persuaded by all of these facts that I find persuasive like the fact that we may be executing people who aren't actually guilty or the arbitrariness of who gets the death penalty and who doesn't or the conditions of confinement on death row. And of course, sometimes in the long run, those dissents went out. Well, there are obviously really historic opinions that have turned into majorities where you know members of the court have written things for the purpose of history in the hope that the law would come around. I mean, this was Chief Justice Rehnquist's approach when he was first on the court. Uh, you would see him as, you know, an 8-1 dissenter. And the chief was on the court for long enough and saw enough changes in the law and the composition of the court that they really did become majority opinions. Chief Justice William Rehnquist played the long game. He dissented in a number of cases implicating federalism and the Commerce Clause when he first joined the court as an associate justice in the 1970s. But by the 1990s, Rehnquist was the chief and fellow conservatives Thomas and Scalia had joined the court, as well as sometime conservatives Kennedy and O'Connor. And Rehnquist's views started to prevail. But then some justices are hoping they went out in other ways. I think of Justice Ginsburg as the category of, I don't think her dissents are made to move precedent so much as to move the political branches. I think sometimes her dissents are very much directed at Congress. The Ledbetter versus Goodyear case is a good example of this. A majority of the court enforced the 180-day statute of limitations for employees to bring pay discrimination claims. RBG wrote a dissent essentially lobbying Congress to fix this, and Congress did just that with the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which allows the 180-day statute of limitation for pay discrimination claims to run from each paycheck rather than running from the first discriminatory wage decision. Some dissents are trying to cabin the majority opinion to basically do damage control. I'm a huge pragmatist, and I think that the purpose of a dissent ought to be 
to minimize the damage from the majority. But apparently I've gotten that wrong because so many dissents seem to amplify the damage from the majority by saying that it's going to be catastrophically worse than anybody could possibly imagine. And that seems to me terribly, terribly misguided. Justice Stewart said that dissents are subversive literature because they seek to make the majority opinion more limited or vulnerable to attack in the future. And while this may not be the judge's goal, sometimes a dissent makes a lawyer feel better, whether you won or lost. When you win, I think it's kind of like, well, you know, I was just there and I had a good seat for the oral argument. But uh, when you win it five to four, then you do tend to think maybe, you know, you won it uh, through the craft of the thing. They do serve an important role in making a losing lawyer feel better. Um, you know, if you if you get a uh, unanimous loss, you know, it's hard to put any kind of positive spin on that. If, if you lose a case five to four and you get a dissenting opinion that just knocks it out of the park and takes some, you know, clever lines from your brief, you're feeling much better about the whole enterprise. As I found, a dissent might actually make a losing lawyer feel worse. Here's my interchange with Tom on that point. As a litigator, sometimes it's just nice to not lose 9-0 or, you know, on a panel 3-0. I don't know if it has that, serves that purpose for you. It's like, I got one. Ironically, I'll say, when you lose a case 9 to nothing, at least you can say, well, <laughs> nobody could have won that thing. When you lose a case 5-4, to four, then you're left struggling, thinking, ugh, man, I bet it would have been possible to pick off just one more vote. So that, that, that's the puzzle is, would you rather lose five to four or nine to nothing? You're losing anyway. And uh, if you lose nine to nothing, at least less, there's less of a feeling that you screwed it up. I don't know. I think I'd still take the five to four. So what makes a good dissent? Well, I'm tempted to say you know it when you read it. I think it's <laughs> uh, difficult to prescribe a formula and can uh, largely depend on the majority opinion. That said, I have a few thoughts. One is that the dissent needs to engage with the majority opinion. The dissents that make the most difference to me are the dissents that, you know, stop you and think, wow, I'm not sure the majority really ever tackled with that. And then you wonder, is this, how, how long will this precedent last? Or if the facts just changed a little bit, might there be a different outcome? I love Lisa's metaphor there. It really illustrates the power of language and the law and Supreme Court opinions to affect you. Elizabeth, can you think of any dissents that stopped you in your tracks? So Justice Stevens' dissent in D.C. versus Heller. So I agree with Scalia's majority opinion. The, the court held that the Second Amendment protects an individual rather than a collective right to keep and bear arms. But I remember reading Stevens' dissent, and I was struck by the fact that it was a liberal originalist opinion. I don't think I had encountered an opinion like that before, but it really engaged with all the same primary sources as the majority. The 1689 English Bill of Rights, the early state constitutions, the framers' debates, and so on. I asked Lisa for an example, and here's what she said. The ones that are the most memorable to me, um, I would say the substantive due process ones, starting with Bowers and then Lawrence versus Texas, uh, the passion, those kind of cases go to the fundamental role of what a court can and should do. And both sides feel so strongly about it that 
it's the the emotion of the dissent. And usually, I mean, this is most of this is Justice Scalia. Um, his writing style was so incredible and so effective and so persuasive and so compelling. And you can tell the majority is like, yeah, I hear you, <laughs> but we've got the votes. <laughs> Reminds me of the Hamilton, uh, the Hamilton rap thing, or you don't have the votes. You don't have the votes. You don't have the votes. <laughs> You're going to need congressional approval and you don't have the votes. This combines two of my favorite things, Lawrence versus Texas and Hamilton the Musical. It is everything good and wonderful. I know the majority opinion in Lawrence gets all the hate, but it's so lovely. This is from the opening passage. In our tradition, the state is not omnipresent in the home, and there are other spheres of our lives and existence outside the home where the state should not be a dominant presence. Freedom extends beyond spatial bounds. The instant case involves liberty of the person, both in its spatial and more transcendent dimensions. Oh, the sweet mystery of life, as Justice Scalia dubbed it. In another case, he said that by endorsing this theory, the court had descended from the disciplined legal reasoning of John Marshall and Joseph Story to the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie. He really had a way with words. Oh boy, that is uh, Justice Kennedy can take it as a compliment. I don't know. If I got that fortune cookie, I'd think it was a very wise fortune cookie. <laughs> Sometimes a dissent provides a completely different perspective on the case. Here's Lisa Blatt. I'll never forget a Justice Thomas dissent. I'm pretty sure it was, a, oh, I know it was in a capital case. And he just went through in excruciating detail what the victim's life was like through the crime. And, you know, <laughs> It just, to have that kind of indelible impact is a, is a really a, a, quite a feat. And so it just, it made you stop in your tracks and think, well, wow, there's another way of looking at the problem. I probably would have voted for the defendant, but for the first time I thought, you know, that's just a completely different way of looking at a, at a criminal case. And it was uh, wonderfully effective. I had a similar feeling last term. I want to read the opening lines from the majority and dissenting opinion in McGirt versus Oklahoma, which considered whether much of Oklahoma is considered Native American territory. So here's the opening from Gorsuch's majority opinion. On the far end of the Trail of Tears was a promise. I mean, just that opening line, you know that this is going to be really impactful. Forced to leave their ancestral lands in Georgia and Alabama, the Creek Nation received assurances that their new lands in the West would be secure forever. Today, we are asked whether the land these treaties promised remains an Indian reservation for purposes of federal criminal law. Because Congress has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word. So it's got all of this imagery of a promise, and throughout the entire opinion, there's this theme of a contract that we have to hold the government to the terms of the contract it agreed to. And then the opening lines of Chief Justice Roberts' dissent began with a very vivid depiction of the horrible crime that McGirt was convicted of. And I won't even read it because it's extremely jarring. And the chief proceeds to say that for that crime, McGirt was sentenced to a thousand years plus life in prison. Then he says... Today, the court holds that Oklahoma lacked jurisdiction to prosecute McGirt on the improbable ground that, unbeknownst to anyone for the past century, a huge swath of Oklahoma is actually a Creek Indian reservation. So those are two very different ways of starting an opinion that put the reader in a totally different space. Dissents are often colorful in part because they can be, 
A dissenting justice doesn't have to worry about garnering votes or compromising. They can really let their hair down. Justice Kagan has talked about how she'll use contractions in her dissent. What a rebel. But she would never do that in a majority opinion. But just as a dissenting justice can be colorful, some would say they have to be. Here's Paul Clement. You know, if you write a majority opinion, people are going to have to read it even if it's poorly written. Because in order to understand what the law is, they have to read the majority opinion. Nobody's going to bother reading a dissent if it's poorly written. Justice Scalia is certainly one of the greatest when you think of colorful dissents. There are so many great Scalia lines. Jiggery-pokery, pure applesauce. One of my favorites is his dissent in the Lamb's Chapel case, arguing against using what's known as the lemon test in an Establishment Clause case. Let me just read one passage. Like some ghoul in a late-night horror movie that repeatedly sits up in its grave and shuffles abroad after being repeatedly killed and buried, lemon stalks our Establishment Clause jurisprudence once again, frightening the little children and attorneys in this case. Its most recent burial, only last term, was, to be sure, not fully six feet under. The secret of the lemon test survival, I think, is that it is most easy to kill. It is there to scare us when we wish it to do so, but we can command it to return to the tomb at will. Cue the thriller music. That is a very effective descent. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go to bed with the lights off tonight. I need a nightlight or something. <laughs> but uh, sometimes descents are not so effective. The other kind of descent that I think you see a little bit less of just because I think justices have figured out that they're really pretty counterproductive is the sky is falling dissent. You know, the dissent that sort of says the majority opinion is not only wrong, but it's worse than you think. And those might be a good example of a dissent that sort of feels very cathartic in the moment, but probably are not very tactical in the long run. The thing I don't get about dissents is when they you know, write at great length, you know, here is why I think this opinion is a catastrophe for 18 different reasons. I can see that as a memorandum to the conference or even a draft dissent trying to get people to change their minds inside the building, uh, to change the majority opinion, to change their votes. But once the opinion is out, why it is that you want to put, you know, in Broadway show lights that, you know, things are worse than anybody believes. I don't really know because that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you want to know about the role of a dissent, who better to ask than the judges who write them? So we interviewed several, and they offered unique insight into not just dissent reading, but dissent writing. I'm uh, Bridget McCormick. I'm the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. I am Beth Walker, and I'm a Justice on the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia. I'm Rhonda Wood. I'm a Justice on the Arkansas Supreme Court. I'm Judge Don Willett of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. So what do these judges think is important about a dissent? Here's Judge Willett. Some judges write for posterity, some for headlines, some to vent, some to cry foul, some to persuade. And for some, it's really a combination of all these. 
when I dissent is fundamentally because I want my reason for disagreeing with the majority to be recorded and explained. And I always ask myself, is this really necessary? And every judge has a different tipping point. Um, but sometimes you're right for yourself, you know, to sleep soundly with a clear conscience. As Chief Justice Hughes put it, a dissent is an appeal to the intelligence of a future day. Uh, a dissent, though, is written to persuade rather than pronounce. So it needs to have a bit of panache. It needs to be vivid and evocative. And here he's talking about Scalia. But his writing is really something to be savored. And uh, the most colorful and memorable lines to me that really stand out often evoked um, images. His line that, you know, Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes, um, which is this great felicitous turn of phrase that actually birthed a whole canon of construction. And here's Chief Justice McCormick. And as you also know, sometimes uh, a dissent, today's dissent, uh, becomes tomorrow's majority opinion, or maybe uh, tomorrow plus 50 years majority opinion, or tomorrow plus a, a century. And so sometimes identifying um, a different way of considering the same problem is important for lawyers and litigants um, and the public down the line. And Justice Wood. But there are occasions that our decisions are, you know, appealed directly to the United States Supreme Court. So there are times where we are writing knowing that's, that's happening. And so it's similar, um, you know, to when I guess, you know, maybe one of our, inter you know, when we have intermediate court of appeals and they're writing knowing the case might come to us. Now consider the source, but I like this bit from Justice Wood. And then we're writing for the litigants. So I think it's fair, you know, to the party that was unsuccessful in our court to, to know they were heard. And sometimes that's how they, they know they were heard is through the dissent. When you lose, which I may know a thing or two about, you at least want to feel heard and a dissent can do that. Something that was universally said about dissents, they're fun to write. It, it can be more fun. I'll say that. Unlike a majority opinion where I feel quite obligated to make sure I incorporate all of the feedback from my colleagues because it really is an opinion of the court and so it should reflect, even though it can be in my voice if it's my authored opinion, it should certainly reflect the, you know, um, changes they want to make to it. So sometimes a dissent is just um, feels, I feel more liberated and uh, I get to be more creative and it's just me and what I think. You have much less concern about the things that we think about when we're writing a majority opinion, uh, such as will this sentence be unanticipated dicta that will get, you know, brought up in a future case and, and construed or misconstrued. Um, so you can just sort of fire away. I agree. I, I think liberating freedom, it's, 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 it's way more fun um, to write a dissent. There's times where you want the majority to come down the way you're voting, but in your mind you think, boy, that would have been a great dissent. For me, my clerks have to sort of walk me back sometimes um, from my fiery dissent. I was also struck by this from Justice Walker about how dissents are fun, but not too much fun. There's still part of you that has to sit back as much fun as we described and still be a little bit circumspect about, okay, well, how is this de dissent going to read in five years, in 10 years? Um, 
you know, we've had some some drama in, in West Virginia on our Supreme Court and one dissent in particular that was authored by a justice who's now actually still serving in federal prison um, was memorable in his lack of mercy. Um, and it just, it came around and got commented on and it demonstrates that you're, you're writing for the current audience, you're writing for the parties, um, but your dissents could be read in 10 and 20 years and you want to be conscious of that too. And in all of our conversations, some of the same dissents throughout history came up often. Justice Jackson's dissent in Korematsu, for sure. Um, Brandeis's dissent in Olmstead, some of the great First Amendment dissents by uh, Holmes and Brandeis. N- not, nothing surprising. Uh, they're, they're canonical for a reason. Justice Jackson and Korematsu, which was recently, finally, formally overruled 73 years later. Um, overruled in the, the court of history, right? <laughs> in the court of history, as it was put, correct. I um, love that. I love that phrase. Obviously, there are some dissents principally those that ultimately get vindicated a majority opinion that just stand out as historical milestones. And the most obvious example of that is uh, the first Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy against Ferguson, which you know not only laid the groundwork for Brown v. Board, but I think is an opinion that everybody would point to as being like, Harlan got it right, the court made a wrong turn. So there, there are dissents like that that are sort of justifiably famous, largely because, you know, the justice who was in the dissent in that particular case, at least in the eyes of subsequent events, got it right. Uh, One can obviously remember uh, the uh, great dissent of the first Justice Harlan and Plessy versus Ferguson, and the dissents of Justices uh, Curtis and McLean in the the Dred Scott cases. The Dred Scott dissents um, were obviously important. And love him or hate him, everybody agrees Justice Scalia was one of the greatest dissenters. In his day, Justice Scalia was the, was the greatest dissenter on the court. Justice Scalia, his writing style was so incredible and so effective and so persuasive and so compelling. Scalia, of course, is famous for some of his fiery dissents. The sheer pyrotechnics of Justice Scalia's dissents are hard to beat. Many further agree that Scalia was at his finest in the case of Morrison versus Olson. Here's two of his former clerks, Ed Whalen and Paul Clement, and Lisa Blatt, RBG clerk, speaking about the case which asked whether a law authorizing the appointment of independent counsel and restricting removal of that counsel to good cause violated the Constitution's promise of the separation of powers. One that stands in my mind is uh, Justice Scalia's dissent in Morrison versus Olson. Uh, his uh, solo dissent at the end of what was only his second term on the court, but I think um, arguably it was the first clear sign of what a great justice he would be. Uh, the most impactful dissent, I think, and maybe this is because of the class I teach, but even before then it was Morrison versus Olson. I kind of grew up thinking that was the law. Like nobody ever read the decision. Everyone just read the dissent. And I don't think of any other case where I never thought of the majority opinion is not the law, but I thought, no, the dissent. Because it really encapsulated his own view of the separation of powers. And then it also just included some very memorable phrases. Um, You know, my favorite in talking about the obviousness of the separation of powers violation in Morrison v. Olson, he said, you know, this wolf comes as a wolf. This is no, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing. 
And that's just, you know, a great line. I've actually used it in Supreme Court arguments myself a couple of times. And here's Judge Willett. Justice Scalia's dissent was a rhetorical tour de force about separation of powers. And it was also really courageous. I mean, Justice Scalia, he was still new to the court. He was only in his second term on the court. And he was the lone dissenter. The vote was 7-1. And the majority was written by the Chief Justice, no less. And straight from the horse's mouth, here's Scalia reading from the bench. How incompatible what we have done today is with what has until today been our political traditions may be made clear by thinking what the result would have been if a statute had been passed seeking to do, to do the same thing to one of the other two branches. Would we have allowed Congress to pass a statute saying that henceforth one tiny bit of the power to enact laws, laws relating to bubble gum, for example, would henceforth be exercised instead of by the House and the Senate by some new body established by statute? And of course, nothing represents a dissent like RBG's collar. She even had a special one just for occasions when she would read a dissent from the bench. Well, this is my dissenting collar. Why is that? It looks fitting for dissents. <laughs> More so than being known for her dissenting opinions, I think she really became a figure of dissent in a general sense. More like the resistance. But she relished her role as the de facto leader of the left wing of the bench. So, what can we learn from dissents? A lot more than simply what a minority of judges thought about the issue at hand. Your topic that made me realize one of the reasons I think it is so hard to be a judge. And I always am fascinated by teaching law school and dealing with professors who are very doctrinal as if the law had one answer. And I'll always kind of say, wait a minute, but there was a dissent. Obviously, there was not just one answer. It cannot be that there was only one answer because four people dissented. And these are all legal giants. So the fact that you have very brilliant people with legal training and being a, you know, a justice for a long, long time came to two diametrically opposed views. So you got me thinking that I'm Good. more right in my view of the world that there's usually no, <laughs> no, except in bankruptcy cases when there's only one answer. But everything else, usually the law is more complicated. It's shades of gray. <laughs> shades of gray. Also, if you dig deep into a dissent, you can learn a lot about the historical moment or the judge's personal story, the dynamics of the court, even the trajectory of the law. That's not to say it's always easy, though. I tend to think of dissenting opinions or even majority opinions as something where you have to distinguish between the reasons that the court is giving uh, for its decision or the justices giving and what was actually motivating them. Um, I tend to think that, you know, when you get to the final vote, you figure out who you persuaded and who you didn't, but it's often very difficult to tell what really would have made the difference for them. But that's what we aim to solve through this podcast. We aim to solve the question of why a dissent came out like it did. What was it about the case or that moment in history that contributed to the outcome? And how have particular dissents stood the test of time? This season on DIST. Guess what's back at the court for a seventh time? 
I have the announcement in case number 11393, National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius. Justices Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito have filed a joint dissenting opinion. The court will once again consider whether a key provision of Obamacare is constitutional. And we're dissecting the original dissent, which may have actually started out as a majority opinion. Also this season... What will the court do this term when it's confronted with an opportunity to overrule what may be Justice Scalia's most controversial opinion? But in 1990, in an infamous case known as the Smith case, the Supreme Court changed the standard radically. In my opinion, that decision rubbed against the total American grain of allowing maximum religious freedom. Thanks for listening to the first episode of DIST. Please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIS.